0: All right. Let's pray before we get started. Dear Lord, we come this morning eager to taste and see that you are good. That is the desire and need of our hearts. And we pray that you would teach us in this time about who you are and how much you delight to bless and fill your people, and that we would learn more about. Taking delight in you, and glorifying you each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is um, the Rhythms of Grace class. This comes, from, we're going to be kind of going through a book. This is a book by a guy named Mike Cosper, um, Rhythms of Grace, How the Church's Worship Tells the Story of the Gospel. Mike Cosper is a pastor of worship and arts at a church that's called Sojourn Community Church, which is in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I think they have several sites there in Louisville, and uh, he's been there since about 2000. He uh, is a musician there. I think he also maybe does some preaching as well. Um, If if any of you, if you know songs, he he produced an album for the Gospel Coalition. It was called Songs from the Book of Luke. We do a couple of songs there, but he helped kind of organize and produce that album. Is um, really good, uh, artistic thinker, but also just a good uh, proclaimer of the gospel in very uh, beautiful ways in this in this little book. Um, and we'll talk about more, but this book kind of comes from some other books that we'll get into. Probably, it's kind of a response in some ways and influenced by some books by Jamie Smith that we'll touch on a little bit more uh, in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to be going through this, not completely in three weeks, but kind of touching on some main things. And so today, this first week that we're going to look at, we're going to kind of look at the story of worship. And first, to do that, you know, it's good to think about what is worship. Um, you may think worship is the, are the, these list of things that we do each Sunday morning, uh, or maybe in our lives. Um, that 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 we do in honor and response to God, and that's a definitely a, a true and good way to think about it. But worship can um, sometimes be confined in just a little narrow uh, framework of our lives, and so I think what what this book and other things uh, will do for us help us to see that in a larger context. So I've got a couple of just little statements here uh, from some. Uh, Theologians and pastors about what is worship. Uh, Like John Frame in that first one. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything, it is the purpose of history, the goal of the whole Christian story. Uh, From John Piper, strong affections for God, rooted in and, and shaped by the truth of Scripture. From John Stott Christians believe that true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which, by the grace of God, is capable. And then Louis Giglio, uh, who is kind of a modern-day, broader, evangelical uh, pastor who has, for modern worship, has a lot of influence on the way things have kind of taken shape. Uh, Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is and what He has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. But I want us to really zero in on this definition from Harold Best because this, uh, it it causes us to think worship is something we do whether you are a believer or not. Harold Best says, worship is the sign that in giving myself completely to someone or something, I want to be mastered by it. We're going to kind of keep that in the back of our minds as we look Throughout uh, these three weeks, and as we look at the story of uh, worship this morning, um, have you guys ever heard of this song that's i 'm sure you have it 's everywhere this song "Take me to church" that you hear on the radio on television commercials um, it's one of those songs that if I hear it, I really liked the the whole sound of it at first, but then it just get just stays in my head It has this Cyclical loop, and and I cannot get it out. It's one of those that it's it's becoming one that I do not want to hear because I will think about it the rest of the day. Um, It's if you have not heard it, it's kind of a uh, you might say it's iffy kind of song. The lyrics are definitely uh, borderline sacrilegious, perhaps. Um, But what he's doing is kind of a love song in some ways, a passionate love song. What he's doing, he's borrowing language from the church. He's um, using a metaphor of worship to express his devotion, um, which is not something that necessarily is a good thing to do. But I find it interesting that this guy who who claims no um, belief at all would would find that metaphor something that he wants to use to express devotion. Like he can't get away from it, even if he uh, doesn't believe in in, in um, true worship. But I want you to see this um, this uh, this quote from him. I have there for you. And in some ways, I think this is a this is a um, not a definition of worship, but at least an expression of worship of what our hearts are capable of and will inevitably do. Uh, he's talking about the the experience of falling in love. He said I found the experience of falling in love or being in love was a death, a death of everything. You kind of watch yourself die in a wonderful way, and you experience for the briefest moment if you see yourself for a moment through their eyes, everything you believed about yourself gone in a death and rebirth sense. I think, I think he's getting at what human beings are created to do and will inevitably do is, is to worship, to have your hearts captivated by something. In trying to define worship, we might make a list of activities, the lit- liturgy on a Sunday morning, music, prayers, preaching, or scripture. But if Harold Best's definition above is true, then we have to think a little more broadly and go back a bit because nobody's heart is going to be captured by just a to-do list, a list of um, activities. So using that definition, what will we give our hearts to? What will we be mastered by? Worship is about a story. And that story is about worship. We'll get into more about story probably a little bit from this book um, a little bit later. But when we gather in worship, in some ways every week we're representing the gospel. And the gospel is a story, a true story that our hearts uh, can be reminded of and need to be reminded of each week. So we're going to look at a little bit at worship as story. Worship is a retelling of the gospel story and an entering into that story. Uh, Think about this. Why do we love sports so much? It's not just because we like to see gifted athletes do what they do. That's great. But so much more of why we like uh, sports and um, uh, and even an individual game. There's a story in in that game. There's a story in... In a race, Um, you know, if you if you watch TV on Super Bowl Sunday, they tell athlete stories all day long. They just have to fill it up with something. So they're going to turn something into a story, right? It's all that's because that's what our hearts are captivated by, you know. Today, the Dallas Cowboys. What are how is their story going to be shaped? If you listen to sports radio, or you are you you notice commentators, they always use. They overuse the word narrative, uh, and like, how is this going to change Tony Romo's narrative? You know, this his performance in this game. What's it going to be? You know, that and that's when we want to find it out because it's part of it's part of the story, right? Um, well, the story of the Bible is primarily about God, not us. It is His glory and beauty being displayed throughout history, and and this is uh, something that he brings out in this book. That's kind of uh, new for me. And because the story is about God, it is about worship. We're trying to think of the whole Bible is really a story about worship. Um, the star of the story is God, who is at the center of all worship, but it is also at its origins in history and its origins in our hearts. The story of worship, like the story of the gospel, is all about God. <coughs> this is a quote from From the book. I can't remember if you guys have this quote or not. I want to he says, I want to tell that story because I believe it will reinvigorate our passion for worship and for all the activities we normally associate with it. The gospel story is the worship story. And so what Mike Cosper does in the first four chapters of his book is give us a bird's eye view of redemptive history with a particular emphasis on how the whole Bible is a story about worship. Before we can get to some of the components and details of worship, we need to have our hearts captured by this story. Okay, so point one there, before the foundations of the world, here's a question to think about. Did worship exist before creation? That's kind of a, uh, uh, you may not have thought about that before, and it's kind of a hard question to answer. Did Did worship exist before creation? It almost seems odd to think about worship existing before creation. Our answer to this might depend on our definition of worship. If worship is just a lesser being giving honor to a greater being, then no, worship, we wouldn't say worship crea- existed before creation. However, if we see worship based in love and ascribing worth, which is where the word worship comes from, worthship um, then we see that there was worship before creation, uh, Cosper says, the Trinity can be said to be always at worship, because the three persons of the Godhead perfectly behold the worship and wonder of another. This is significant because it gets at the essence of the nature of God. Um, so I want to read. Actually, everybody take, find a hymnal and go to page 849. We're read, I'm going to read just a little bit from the Westminster Confession about... 849, about uh, of God and of the Holy Trinity. Now I want you to, as we read this, this beautiful description of God and his character, it draws us to worship, but I want you to think about the Trinity knowing this about itself perfectly and delighting in these facts eight forty one uh, i 'm sorry eight forty nine maybe I said eight forty one eight forty nine yeah eight forty nine sorry the chapter two of the uh, confession there, the first paragraph there, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long suffering. I I hear in my mind I would need I would need a brother on the on the organ. Like every, time, every time you say one of these, wow, wow, that's kind of what I'm hearing in my in my head. <laughs> every comma needs to be a little little organ swell. Um, sorry. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. The rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And withal, most just, and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And you can, we could can just read on uh, that second paragraph too. But that, imagine the Trinity knowing that about itself. We, we read that and we respond in awe and, and quietness and joy. Imagine the Trinity knowing that perfectly about itself, responding in jubilation. It's it, as John Piper says. God is uh, he his like, like the like the confession. His, God's chief end is also to glorify Himself and to enjoy Himself forever. That's that's his that's his uh, primary chief end. Um, so, reading that stirs our hearts, and we see only through a glass dimly. If worship is ascribing worth, then we would say that, yes, worship did uh, exist, delighting in, did exist uh, before creation. The Trinity is delighting in one another continually and has been for all eternity. That is who God is, not someone who demands worship because he's gone without it for too long and now it's time to pay up. No, he is a God who creates man and invites him to enter into the delight that he is known for eternity. Um, One of my favorite hymn texts that uh, pops into my mind all the time, probably because uh, the choir has sung it so many, I've heard it so many times from the uh, choir anthem that we've done a number of times, Joy to the Heart, at Easter. Um, One of the verses says, Look there, the Christ our brother comes. In darkest hurt, Upon the tree to offer us the worlds of light that live inside the Trinity. And so think of that as creation, what God has offered to us to enjoy the worlds of light that live inside the Trinity, but also what Christ has purchased for us. Um, Harold Best, who had that, that definition at the beginning, in his book called Unceasing Worship, he describes the Trinity as continuously outpouring. God is always giving. The Trinity is always delighting in and outpouring praise and adoration within itself. And then he says this about creating man in his image, Harold Best says. Because God is the continuous outpourer, we bear his image as continuous outpourers. So, that little... Two-sentence statement there. You will worship something. That's who we are. We will worship something. And you will worship something. So we will always worship, and we will always be worshiping something. So why do we worship? Because we are worshipers. Before we can talk about the many particulars about worship, we need to have our hearts captured by the story of worship. So that second point there the Song of Eden. Um, here's a, a quote. I think you have this on your, on your page. A quote from uh, Cosper. But Adam, in after creation, he wasn't leading worship services or doing ritualistic things to earn God's approval. There was no need. Each moment of his life was a pleasing offering to God. For Adam and Eve, all of life in Eden was an unbroken, loving response to God's work as their creator, caretaker, and Lord. There were no separated out worship services. This is another quote. There is only the glorious and glorifying life lived with and unto God. If someone were to ask Adam, when do you worship God? He might reply, when do we not? Worship isn't something other, external, or compartmentalized, or confined. It is life with God, lived unto God for His glory and our pleasure. You know, when you think about the Garden of Eden, there is no temple, there's no uh, stationed-off sanctuary, a place to go worship. It was just always a part of everything that, uh, that Adam was originally supposed to do. This ties in so much with our sermon series on work and how... Um, that's not, that's not something uh, originally designed to be... Uh, it it wasn't, It's not just an incidental, uh, compartmentalized aspect of our lives, what we, what we do apart from Sunday morning. This is vastly important to start with because it gives us the beginning, the way things were intended to be, and it also gives us a glimpse into the consummation of the worship story as well. But... What happens? And we've heard about this this morning as well, right? Paradise is lost. Up to this moment, nothing has ever been done apart from the life and love of God. Now, suddenly, a whole new world opens up. The seed of that forbidden fruit will sprout deep in human hearts, spreading out roots and branches that will encompass the whole of humanity's future, blossoming into pride and envy, murder and deceit. Another quote. If worship is about ascribing worth, then it's easy to see where worship goes wrong. Adam and Eve think that they'll gain from the fruit. They think that what they'll gain from the fruit is of greater worth than what they have with God. So their worship nature, their continuously outpouring nature, is distorted at this point. And so we know that uh, work is hard. that the heart is now deceitful. And as we heard this morning, the Adam and Eve hid in shame, and they knew that they would have to pay. They knew that they were guilty. But God comes looking for them, and instead of taking the punishment out on them, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The first substitutionary act of grace in history. In order for worship to be restored, there has to be bloodshed. It's a foretaste of worship restored. This is a quote again. With Adam and Eve stepping again into participation with God's work as he stakes a bloody claim upon them and marks them as his own. So this next section, worship in the wilderness, uh, continuous outpours turned towards idolatry. And he's... He uh, kind of going starts with um, Noah and moves and moves forward a little bit, not not always um, going uh, into great detail, but uh, these chapters kind of take on huge chunks of of history at once, just talking about the the overall effects of what's going on. Um, here's another quote from Harold Best. Uh, sin has brought de- devastation to our relationship with God, but the hunger for fulfillment in our natures uh, is still there. And from, Her- from Harold Best, Our outpouring was falsified, but it continued with one telling difference. We exchanged gods. We turned from the w- only one who was not creature and were left not in a persisting vacuum. This would have been a premature hell. But with a new plethora, the universe of innumerable false gods, false religions, and the religionizing of anything that catches our fancy. Here we see the extent of the tragic nature of the fall. It's not just that we start doing bad things that we wouldn't have done otherwise, but that the image of the eternal God that we were created in, the continuous outpouring of our nature, is not taken away, but is twisted away from its object and source, the triune God, and now seizes upon other created objects to ascribe worth to unduly. And we all know this uh, verse from Jeremiah 2 that kind of sums up uh, so much of our heart's problem where, where God says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves broken systems that can hold no water. So we turn from worshiping that which we're created to and that would give us ultimate fulfillment to other things looking for fulfillment in places that that cannot uh, come through. Um, so taking this uh I This step of idolatry, where are, let's name some of the places that our hearts turn to and ascribe undue worth. What are some of the idols of our culture and of just, not want to just say the culture, but ourselves? What are some of the idols that we tend to turn to? Entertainment. Entertainment. Diversion. Comfort. Work, drugs, time, time money. money, all of these things. Self. Mm-hmm. Here are two effects of idolatry that we can see in, in the way they capture our hearts. They always demand more. Idols always demand more the level of shock and sensuality is always on the rise. Number two, they transform their worshipers into their own image. You become what we behold and ascribe worth to. You think of that passage in um, 2 Corinthians 3 where, like Moses, who had beheld the Lord, his face was shining, and we who are beholding the Lord are being transformed from glory to glory, we become what we ascribe worth to. And um, Isaiah, when God is showing the the, um, the shortcomings of idols and idol worshiping, he says that they they look like men, and the men are they're not they're no different than the, the idols that they worship. Okay, next, the song of Israel. Sin enters the world, but God is faithful to his promises to crush the head of the serpent. However, it doesn't always look like the saintliest of men that he uses. And here is a uh, good quote from the book. The song of the patriarchs is a song born of weeping, of too much drink, of long suffering, of hopeless sojourns and agonizing compromise. It's not a song of affluence and triumph. It's not the song of the saintly sung in white robes and accompanied by choirs of angels in pitch-perfect orchestration. It sounds m- far more like drunken sailors wailing a hazy lament in a land far from home. Okay, I want to try to make sure I have... I'm not trying to say too much here. Okay, so as we move into Exodus, we see God's people enslaved in Egypt. God tells Moses to ask Pharaoh to let them go on a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice, to worship. But it's not until the last final plague, the first Passover, that the people are allowed to leave. So the exodus takes place and the people eventually receive the law of God. And in that law are given directions for the tabernacle, okay, the sanctuary and the altar. And now the ugliness of sin requires drastic pra- practices of worship. Um, in the book, he borrows a line from an Isaac Watts hymn, Bleeding Birds and Bleeding Beasts, that marks the, uh, the worship of, uh, of the Old Testament. The visceral reality of sin really hits home when you have to sacrifice your animals regularly. Here are, here are three aspects of worship that define Israel's relationship with God. I think I have those listed there for you. First of all, the temple. God will have a house, another quote, God will have a house of his own in the middle of the ordinary lives of his people. The temple is a redemptive step toward restoring all that was lost when Adam and Eve fell. The temple is a gracious act of God to seek out his people while still having to protect them from his blinding holiness. It wasn't that worship was uh, something that people naturally did anymore, right? It was... God had to set up a special place and a special means uh, in order to enter his presence. Fire, smoke, thunder, and death accompany the presence of God. This is the price of sin for a fallen world where once God could dwell in glory and we could dwell in safety. Now his holiness blazes in our sin-stained atmosphere a scorching warning to those who would dare go near him apart from some measure of protection. That's from the book as well. So the temple, that's an aspect of the, of the Old Testament worship. And next, the priest. So not just anyone could go behind the curtains and approach the presence of God. God establishes the priesthood that would provide mediators between God and man. From the book again, just as Adam stood as the chief representative of creation before God, the priests represent God's people, and their work gathers up Israel's praise in one voice offering it in an acceptable way. And then thirdly, the sacrifices themselves. There were regular sacrifices as part of Israel's worship that ranged from special once-a-year celebrations down to ordinary, everyday sacrifices. There were burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and trespass offerings, each having its own stipulations and purposes. The seriousness of sin demanded death this was still the grace of God pursuing His people. And from the book again, let's also remember that this was all evidence of God's grace. Nothing required God to provide a way for redeeming fallen man. He had every right to simply allow us to suffer the deadly consequences of our actions, but He didn't. He never abandoned us. He stepped into our world and made a way for us to know Him. So the, the, the progression Of redemption is being rolled out, and God is uh, taking steps to redeem and be with his people. So, the song of Israel is sung in this way in the ebb and flow of idolatry and repentance in the Old Testament until the final, ultimate fulfillment of God's worship redemption plan comes to pass. And the song of Jesus, next point there. Though creation's first daughter failed to remember her God, her God never fails to remember her. God shows his faithfulness in ascribing ultimate worth in the death of his own son. In a single event, this is a quote from the book again, in a single event, Jesus revolutionizes worship by offering his body as a sacrifice for us. He makes it possible for the unholy to enter the presence of the holy On the third day, after breathing his last on the cross, he rises up from the grave, his resurrected frame, a glorious new temple, and a beacon to the whole world, inviting all who may come to worship the God who saves. So lastly, we'll take a look at Jesus as our priest and our worship leader. And what does Jesus do while on the cross? He prays the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, some people point out that because Jesus prayed that psalm, we could put the whole psalm in his lips and ultimately all of the psalms in the, in the lips of, of Christ. So on the cross, Jesus prays the first verse of Psalm 22. But if you look at... Um, Hebrews 2 if you have your bible turn to Hebrews 2 for a minute so we're thinking about Jesus now as the not just the the sacrifice who makes our worship possible but the one who perfects our worship and who is our 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 ultimate worship leader. Uh, In Hebrews 2.12, there's another portion of Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is kind of in, uh, there's kind of two halves to it. You have a very much a lament half that started with um, what Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then the second part of Psalm 22 uh, starts with this, the verse that's quoted there in Hebrews 2.12. Uh, the writer of Hebrews putting this part of Psalm 22 into the lips of Jesus as well. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Jesus ascends to heaven to complete his work in transforming worship, standing in the presence of God as our perfect priest. Jesus is the perfect worshiper offered up himself to God and now represents us to God and joins with us as we in him offer up perfect worship. So keeping in mind those three aspects of the Old Testament worship, Jesus is the perfect temple, right? He said that if you tear down this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. He is the place where we meet God. He is the perfect sacrifice, for, for sin and the curse. And he is the high priest, the great high priest who offers up that sacrifice once and for all. And now he's, he's part of us. He calls us his brothers. We are the we are uh, united to him, and he is uh, leading us in praise. When we sing, think of Christ as leading. Our worship he is uh, he is one with us as we do that it 's so easy if you think about if you think about your life attending worship and the way that your relationship with God has ebbed and flowed over the years. I know for me it 's so easy sometimes to think man i wish uh, i wish I've, I wish I felt what I once felt in some moment or uh, you know, or feel guilty about not having your heart stirred in some way that you imagine it all to be stirred. Um, as if, even if you did reach that point, as if that were perfect. Um, but no, instead, Christ, his worship, sacrifice, it's, it's perfect, it's done, and he is with us. He is uh, leading us in our singing and in our praise. Um, he is the perfect temple, the perfect sacrifice and the great high priest forever and ever. And so the, the, the Bible begins with Adam in the garden with no temple, no sacrifices, just daily walking with God and delighting in him. And then we see in Revelation 21 our worship story and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then a little bit later, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So we see our destiny is again walking with God perfectly, naturally with Him, never losing step, never uh, never wishing that we had more delight in Him. But it will be perfect at that time. Because it is perfect with Jesus' delight. So this is the story. This is, before we start talking about details about worship and what purposes and uh, components, we need to have our hearts captured by this story. Because your heart will be captured by something. Um, so this is the story, the good news that is able to capture our hearts we are invited to give ourselves completely to this rescuing God and have ourselves mastered by Him. To worship Him in that way, and I've, I've read this picture there. It's at the bottom. I saw that on the internet back in December. Um, it just kind of tells the whole the whole story in one in one image. Um, I love that picture because it has sadness, it has compassion in it. And it has victory all at the same time. Um, We have a few minutes here. Next time we'll we'll start talking about some some more of the details and theology of, of worship itself. You might have any comments or questions or anything. I know that that was kind of a, maybe a strange flyby of, uh, of uh, the Bible I know when I first opened this, the book up, I was like alright tell me something I'm doing wrong and tell me something we need to fix and then he spends four chapters just kind of telling the gospel story in a new beautiful way And I said okay that's not what I expected but I see now why <laughs> I See now why we need to do that um, no questions or comments for anybody alright Well, let's pray. And we'll be out a a couple of minutes early. How about that? (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have been the perfect temple, sacrifice, and great high priest for your people. Lord, let us hide ourselves in you and know you as the lover of our souls and that our hearts would be Captured by you and by your worth and your story, your gospel, and that we would be more and more mastered by you. We pray that we would go forth delighting in you in worship or in the rest of our day and delighting and resting in you. In Christ's name, amen.